Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, now in the wee hours of November 20th, 2022. Well, this week we narrowly avoided what we've all been fearing. That is a NATO member becoming involved in the Ukraine war and Article 5 being invoked, which would almost certainly mean direct superpower confrontation with potentially unthinkable consequences. As we all know, on Tuesday, November 15th, a village just across the Polish border was hit by a missile, killing two farmers. But NATO is now saying it wasn't a Russian missile. It was a Ukrainian missile, part of the country's air defense system, which went off course while attempting to intercept a Russian rocket. Ukraine denies this and insists it was not their missile. Now, I don't claim to know who is right here, and I'm not interested in anyone's speculation or dogmatic opinion on the matter if they don't have access to the satellite and telemetry data, which NATO does. But I don't trust them either, because it is very likely that they are seeking to avoid direct war with Russia. And as George Orwell wrote in 1943, everyone believes in the atrocities of the enemy and disbelieves in those of his own side, even without bothering to examine the evidence. Yeah, no kidding. But as NATO and Ukraine agree, if Russia wasn't firing missiles on virtually all of Ukrainian territory, including dangerously close to the Polish border, this certainly wouldn't have happened. And as I speak tonight, the snow is falling on Kyiv amid power shortages and rolling blackouts. And just today, the heating plant was taken out by a Russian missile in the city of Zaporizhia. Russia is destroying the civilian infrastructure of Ukraine, clearly aimed at making life unlivable as the bitter Ukrainian winter approaches and break the will of the populace. Clearly, war crimes, and quite likely, crimes against humanity. And all of this is in retaliation for Ukrainian advances on the ground, in particular, the liberation of the city of Kherson, which Russia had recently declared to be annexed. So Russia is losing on the ground, as imperial powers nearly always lose in wars of conquest, and is using the only effective power at its disposal, its missile force. And the tanky left, or pseudo-left, here in New York City in the West, surprise, surprise, is responding with perfectly predictable blame-the-victim bullshit. Let's take a little review of what they've been saying, as odious as it is. First, Alexander Rubinstein, a veteran of Russian state propaganda outlet RT, and also, shamefully, a veteran of Occupy Wall Street and the New York activist scene, 
has a piece on Gray Zone November 18th entitled Zelensky, media lackeys caught in most dangerous lie yet, quote unquote. Well, how interesting that Rubenstein is actually agreeing with NATO here that it wasn't the Russian missile that struck Polish territory. But does he bring any evidence to bear? Nope, because he doesn't have any, despite his dogmatic headline. No evidence other than his beloved Russia being exonerated by his hated NATO. So funny. Instead, he writes, this is his opening line, quote, with Kiev exposed, note that he spells it Kiev, K-I-E-V, not the Ukrainian way, Kiev, K-Y-I-V. <clears throat> Just had to interject that observation. Let me start over. Quote, with Kiev exposed for a lie that could have triggered a third world war, it is time to examine past deceptions that Western media promoted, end quote. And by way of example, he cites the missile strike on a railway station in Ukraine's southeastern city of Kramatorsk on April 8th that killed at least 50 civilians, including several children. Rubenstein is citing other reports in Gray Zone as saying the missile didn't come from Russian-controlled territory, a claim dismissed as false by the watchdog on online disinformation, PolitiFact. You can read it and judge for yourself. Just Google it up. Quote, no evidence that Ukraine attacked a train station in one of its cities. End quote. PolitiFact, April 18th, 2022. Arun Gupta, another longtime fixture on the New York activist scene, formerly the leading personality at the independent alternative newspaper, retweets a Financial Times story which quotes an anonymous Western diplomat saying, quote, Ukraine is openly lying, end quote. And Gupta adds, quote, Zelensky won't be happy until half of Eurasia is radioactive rubble, end quote. Again, so cute to see these supposed lefties suddenly turning to Western diplomats for vindication and blaming Ukraine for having the temerity to defend itself. Since the liberation of Kherson, Max Blumenthal, publisher of Grey Zone, has been obsessively tweeting every report of reprisals in the city against suspected Russian collaborators. Now, I don't take reprisals lightly, and certainly any reports of reprisals against civilians should be investigated, and any perpetrators brought to justice. Absolutely. That said, reprisals are unfortunately rather inevitable in situations like this, and have to be seen in the context of what Kherson suffered under eight months of Russian occupation. Google up this story if you haven't seen it, from National Public Radio, November 18th, Screams from Russia's alleged torture basements still haunt Ukraine's Kherson, quote-unquote, complete with photos of and survivor accounts of 
the makeshift detention centers in the basements of police stations where residents were detained and brutalized for being out after curfew or for speaking Ukrainian. And we can be certain that Blumenthal is either ignoring such reports or summarily dismissing them. I'll add that in uh, the videos he is now posting on Twitter of apparent Ukrainian reprisals, people are not being tortured, but publicly tied up and humiliated. By no means am I justifying it. But there were far worse reprisals than this against ethnic Germans in Poland and Czechoslovakia in 1945 for similarly obvious reasons. And, of course, such voices are calling for a cutoff of military aid to Ukraine, just as Ukraine is winning, most particularly at the event entitled The Real Path to Peace in Ukraine, held at the People's Forum here in New York just today, that is to say this past day, November 19th, featuring, I think mostly by video link, Noam Chomsky, Medea Benjamin, Jill Stein, and other luminaries of the pseudo-left. The event was protested by a contingent of New York-area Ukrainians and their supporters, including some of my friends in the group Syria Solidarity, New York City. I wasn't able to make it, unfortunately. But it was all about trying to mobilize a mass movement against U.S. military aid to Ukraine. And the fact that NATO is not buying Ukraine's denial about the Polish strike shows that NATO doesn't have hot nuts for war, contrary to the relentless portrayal of Putin's useful idiots who will endlessly blame NATO for Putin's aggression. The U.S. especially is in a period of retrenchment following the two decades of massive military overextension that began after 9-11 with the Afghanistan and Iraq invasions. And in fact, I think that the humiliating and disastrous U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan last year is what prompted Putin to undertake the Ukraine invasion this year, thinking that this would be a propitious moment to get away with it. But the tanky pseudo-left continues to portray the West as the obstacle to peace from Medea Benjamin's October 7th story in Salon, cynically entitled, Joe Biden's broken promise to avoid war with Russia could lead to Armageddon. She writes... In April, Western officials took a fateful step when they persuaded Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to abandon Turkish and Israeli-brokered negotiations with Russia that had produced a promising 15-point framework for a ceasefire, a Russian withdrawal, and a neutral future for Ukraine. End quote. And she links here to a piece from Common Dreams entitled Boris Johnson pressured Zelensky to ditch peace talks with Russia. Citing claims to this effect in a Ukrainian newspaper based on anonymous sources, and note the difference in the wording. The original source says pressured. Medea Benjamin says persuaded. 
assuming baselessly that this supposed pressure was decisive in swaying Zelensky. So Zelensky broke off talks because he was manipulated by perfidious Albion, not, as he said, because of the Buka massacre, which was uncovered in April when Ukrainian troops took that Kiev suburb from Russia and found the mass graves where hundreds of bodies had been dumped, which Medea Benjamin does not even see fit to mention. Genocide of the Ukrainian people is 100% invisible to her. It should also be noted that this 15-point ceasefire agreement was Ukraine's. Basically, the proposal we've discussed before for Ukraine to drop its ambition to join NATO in return for equivalent guarantees for its security and sovereignty and for Russia to withdraw to its legal borders which it has not been within since 2014 with the occupation of the Donbass and the annexation of Crimea. And since these negotiations broke down in April after the revelation of the Bukha massacre, Russia has actually declared the Donbass and adjoining oblasts to be annexed along with Crimea and states that this is not open to negotiation. So, Medea Benjamin is peddling pure, distorted revisionism. Shame on Salon for running this Putin-abetting filth from Medea Benjamin. There are too many distortions to enumerate here, and I'm not sure if I already deconstructed this one on the podcast or not, but since I'm on a roll, here's another. She writes that Moscow, quote, recognized that Russia is fighting NATO. Not asserted or declared, but recognized. Taking it as a fait accompli that it's accurate on the dubious basis of NATO aid to Kyiv. And of course, the knee-jerk call for negotiation. Russia is massacring Ukrainians in all the territory it has taken and just annexed 15% of Ukrainian territory and stated that return is not open to negotiation, and Medea Benjamin acts like negotiation is some kind of panacea. Who are you to tell the Ukrainians that they must cede territory to an aggressor, Medea Benjamin? And that is exactly what she is doing from the safety of San Francisco. All I hear is let the Ukrainians die so San Francisco doesn't get nuked. Such courage. I've got an idea. Why don't we give San Francisco to Putin instead of Donbass and Zaporizhia and Kherson and see how Medea Benjamin likes that? Medea Benjamin is in the grand tradition of Charles Lindbergh and Lord Haw Haw, all the worse for its pseudo-peacenik guys. There is nothing more disgusting than hippie fascism. And this line uh, was repeated in the publicity blurb for today's event at the People's Forum, which states, quote, U.S. government policy remains to obstruct negotiations and send endless weapons into the war zone, end quote. Right. It isn't the Russian massacres that are obstructing negotiations. Zelensky is just a puppet who does whatever he's told. So condescending. And also a thesis rather contradicted by the fact that Zelensky is not now going along with the NATO consensus that it was a Ukrainian missile that hit Poland. And tell me, 
Would these supposed leftists have opposed Russia sending weapons into the war zone in Spain in 1936? Ironically, from today's perspective, the USSR was the only world power at that time that did back the right side in Spain with armed support against the attempted fascist takeover of the country, a takeover that was ultimately successful precisely because the anti-fascist resistance was betrayed by the Western powers. But today, these supposed leftists are on the same side as the right-wing isolationists like Marjorie Taylor Greene, whose counterparts in the U.S. and Britain and France in the 1930s opposed aid to Republican Spain. I don't know how they square it. It's just through the looking glass. We can return to the sycophantic interview with Chomsky by an outfit called Edu Kitchen back in May, which we discussed at the time, in which this supposed icon of the left actually praised Donald Trump for advocating appeasement of Putin in Ukraine and portrayed the real problem as NATO's supposed design to absorb Ukraine into the alliance. Again, a reversal of fact. As we stated over and over, Ukraine declared its neutrality upon independence from the USSR in 1991 and only started urgently petitioning for admission into NATO after Russia began annexing pieces of its territory in 2014. And the U.S. and other NATO powers responded reluctantly, partly because of precisely those de facto annexed territories, the Donbass and Crimea, because not having territorial disputes is a precondition for entrance into the alliance. Ignoring this, Chomsky engaged in the distortion that the U.S. was calling for the, quote, enhanced integration of Ukraine into NATO, unquote, which is an incorrect rendering of the text of the September 1st, 2021 White House press release, which he cited, which actually said that Ukraine was becoming a NATO, quote, enhanced opportunities partner, end quote, not enhanced integration, which implies that Ukraine was being fast-tracked for becoming a NATO member, but enhanced opportunities, which as the text of the press release makes clear, means that Ukraine was being slow-tracked for possible eventual membership until it made mandated reforms in cleaning up perceived corruption and lack of transparency and resolved its territorial disputes. The latter basically being a permanent Russian veto on Ukrainian membership. So Russia had already ensured, before launching the full-scale invasion this March, that Ukrainian integration into NATO would be indefinitely suspended. Utterly Orwellian distortions on the part of Chomsky. And if you actually pay attention to the news, heaven forbid, there is evidence that the reality is exactly the reverse of this portrayal. And the West is attempting to force Ukraine to the negotiating table and to cede territory, 
which basically means betraying the inhabitants of these territories to oppression, persecution, and torture, and possibly massacre and genocide. For starters, in a statement on November 7th, Ukrainian President Zelensky signaled his willingness to resume negotiations with Russia as long as they are rooted in the restoration of Ukraine's territorial integrity, respect for the UN Charter, compensation for war damages, justice for war crimes, and guarantees for Ukraine's future security. Starting points for any possible negotiations. But there is apparently, at the very least, a faction of the Washington elite that wants Ukraine to settle for far lesser terms. From the New York Times, November 10th, partly based on anonymous sources, which is always cause for a degree of skepticism, but not entirely, from the text, top U.S. general urges diplomacy in Ukraine while Biden advisors resist. General Mark A. Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has made the case that Ukrainians should try to cement their gains at the bargaining table. Dateline, Washington. A disagreement has emerged at the highest levels of the United States government over whether to press Ukraine to seek a diplomatic end to its war with Russia, with America's top general urging negotiations, while other advisors to President Biden argue that it is too soon. General Mark A. Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has made the case in internal meetings that the Ukrainians have achieved about as much as they could reasonably expect on the battlefield before winter sets in, and so they should try to cement their gains at the bargaining table, according to officials informed about the discussions. But other senior officials have resisted the idea. The debate, which the officials described on condition of anonymity, because they were not authorized to discuss sensitive deliberations, has spilled out into the public in recent days, as General Milley made public comments hinting at his private advice. Seize the moment, he said in a speech in New York on Wednesday, which would have been November 9th. He elaborated in an interview on CNBC on Thursday, November 10th. We've seen the Ukrainian military fight the Russian military to a standstill, he said. Now we think there are some possibilities here for some diplomatic solutions, end quote. The White House, however, made a point of distancing itself from any perception that it is pushing President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine to cede territory to Russian invaders, even as Moscow pulls back its forces from the strategic city of Kherson. The United States is not pressuring Ukraine, Jake Sullivan, the president's national security advisor, told reporters on Thursday, end quote. But Jake Sullivan's disavowal rings slightly hollow. Here's a story from Reuters, November 14th. Did you catch this one? CIA chief in Ankara, meeting with Russian counterpart, U.S. official says, U.S. Central Intelligence Agency Director William Burns is in Ankara to speak with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Narishkin, head of Russia's SVR, or Foreign Intelligence Service. <clears throat> Again, there is the requisite disavowal that they were discussing a settlement of the war in Ukraine, but 
I'm not sure what else would mandate a face-to-face -face meeting. Okay, and if you review the tweets in the long Twitter threads under the announcements for the People's Forum event from the accounts of the People's Forum and related entities that were involved in organizing the event, including Answer Coalition and the poorly named Party for Socialism and Liberation, <clears throat> there is an endless stream of similar distortions. One writes, quote, NATO is not a defensive alliance, it's a war machine. Ask the people of Libya. <clears throat> With a retweet of that meme that's going around that reads, quote, NATO launched more than 10,000 air raids on Libya in 2011, with over 500,000 civilian casualties, with casualties spelled wrong, incidentally. <clears throat> when they were questioned about civilian casualties, or casualties, as it is incorrectly rendered in this all-too-popular meme, <clears throat> They insisted that it was collateral damage and that it happens in wars, end quote. Okay, for starters, this is rank whataboutery when Russia is raining death on Ukraine. But also, it isn't even true. 100% post-truth. This from USA Today's Fact Check page of March 23rd, 2022, that is a month into the Russian invasion, Fact check. False claim. NATO airstrikes killed 500,000 in Libya. From the text, after extensive field investigations throughout Libya, Human Rights Watch found the NATO airstrikes killed at least 72 civilians, one-third being children under 18. Amnesty International documented 55 cases of named civilian deaths as the result of airstrikes. Another December 2011 investigation by the New York Times found available evidence suggests at least 40 civilians and perhaps more than 70 were killed by NATO in attacks, and the victims included at least 29 women or children. Another organization reported a higher number, but still only a fraction of the 500,000 number in the post. Chris Woods, co-founder of Air Wars, which tracks claims of civilian harm in conflict zones, told USA Today via email that the suggested tally of 500,000 casualties is not supported by Libyans themselves or in any major investigations by any legitimate organization. Air Wars published a report on the 10th anniversary of the conflict analyzing allegations of civilian harm in Libya in 2011 from all parties. Looking only at NATO actions, public Libyan records allege they caused 578 to 802 deaths. Out of those, air wars found 223 to 403 civilian deaths were likely. The data notes for death tally was likely significantly higher because local social media use was limited in Libya in 2011. 
There was little independent local media and local reports of civilian harm may have been lost, end quote. So yes, likely considerably higher, but no reason to believe it was remotely close to the 500,000 cited in that meme. And the photo used in the meme, by the way, of a city being bombarded is unrelated to the Libya conflict. It's a composite photoshopped image with none of its constituent images being from Libya. So uh, returning to the text here, USA Today concludes, quote, our rating false. Based on our research, we rate false. The claim that NATO's airstrikes over Libya in 2011 resulted in more than 500,000 civilian casualties. NATO said there's no truth to this claim, which is confirmed by reports from human rights organizations, conflict experts, and news outlets. Most estimates put the number of civilian deaths at less than 100, end quote. Now, civilian casualties are not the same as deaths, I will point out. Just needs to be mentioned. And I'm skeptical myself that civilian deaths in the Libya bombardment numbered less than 100. I think probably it was significantly higher than that. But the 500,000 figure is arbitrary and hallucinatory, pulled out of thin air. No reason to assume that the death toll was remotely that high. This meme is the most cynical post-truth propaganda, which seeks to exploit the suffering of the Libyans in order to distract from and relativize that of the Ukrainians. By the way, the latest figures from the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, released in October, documented 16,150 civilian casualties in Ukraine since the invasion, including 6,374 killed. These are only the documented casualties. We may assume that the actual figure, once again, is much higher than this. Probably, in this case, exponentially higher. And uh, why don't we take a brief look at Syria, which has almost entirely disappeared from the headlines since the Ukraine invasion, as long as we're playing the comparative atrocity game, what's been going on in Syria recently? An air raid in eastern Syria's Deir Azor province along the Iraqi border made at least brief headlines November 9th. Uh, it targeted a convoy of a pro-regime militia killing 14 presumed militiamen. There was immediate speculation that the raid was the latest in the small but growing handful of times over the course of the 10-year Syrian war that the U.S. has bombed forces allied with the Assad regime, generally targeting the Iran-backed paramilitary network in the country. However, Israel has for years also carried out sporadic airstrikes on similar targets in Syria, and has likewise come under suspicion in this attack. And the U.S. generally claims credit for such raids, while Israel does not, and nobody has in this instance, so we can safely assume it was Israel. 
getting even less media attention, which basically means none whatsoever, are the ongoing airstrikes by Russia and the Assad regime on the remaining pocket of rebel control in Syria's northwest. On November 6th, just three days before the Deir Azor attack, Russian or regime strikes near Idlib city targeted a displaced persons camp, leaving at least seven non-combatants dead and winning no international headlines. I only know about it from the new humanitarian website, a specialty site on humanitarian affairs in conflicted areas. Hardly a mainstream source. And they were citing human rights monitors on the ground and the United Nations Human Rights Office. The Western media, including the wire services, were like crickets. So the mainstream media bias is actually the reverse of that portrayed by the pseudo-left consensus. The reverse. The mainstream media and the anti-war left alike consider Syrian lives to be completely expendable. The total death toll in the Syrian war after 10 years is in the hundreds of thousands, with a figure of 500,000 generally accepted by international experts. While counting the casualties in a war zone is always a fraught exercise, and the UN stopped trying in Syria several years ago, the available estimates provide some scale of the massive death toll. The UK-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, with its own network on the ground in Syria, puts the number of people killed since March 2011 at more than 380,000, including over 115,000 civilians. The Violations Documentation Center of Syria, registered as a nonprofit in Switzerland, but with most of its team on the ground in Syria, has documented more than 215,000 battle-related deaths, including nearly 130,000 civilians. The big majority of these deaths were almost certainly at the hands of the Assad regime and Russia, which are the parties that have been bombing Syrian opposition-held areas continuously since 2012, or in the case of Russia, 2015, massively targeting civilian infrastructure, water and electricity plants, and hospitals and such, much as Russia is now doing in Ukraine. Assad and Russia have killed far more Syrians than ISIS or any other terrorist outfit in the country. That slightly propagandistic word, which is almost never used with a single standard. And that's just the battlefield deaths. If you can even call a bombarded city a battlefield, the Syrian Network for Human Rights cites 100,000 disappeared who have almost certainly died in the dictatorship's prison gulag. And the battlefield death figure also does not include those who died from causes related to the conflict, such as hunger and COVID-19, which is now rapidly spreading in the displacement camps in northern Syria and overwhelming the healthcare facilities. And now cholera is also emerging in Syria as a direct result of damage to healthcare facilities by the Russian regime bombardment, at least in the north. 
But the pseudo-leftists who live in a confirmation bias bubble, getting all of their information from Gray Zone and Medea Benjamin, and organizations in the <clears throat> online ecosystem, as they call it, of the pseudo-anti-war left, will never know what a distorted picture they are getting. The websites of the PSL and the International Action Center and the United National Anti-War Coalition don't demand Russian troops out of Ukraine. The banner on the UNAC website, United National Anti-War Coalition, says, No U.S. slash NATO war in Ukraine. And is concerned not with the invasion of Ukraine, but with, quote, war threats on Russia, end quote. The International Action Center similarly proclaims, quote, stop the war on Russia, end quote. This is not opposition to the actual war, which is on Ukraine. It is direct propaganda support for the Russian war effort. Completely post-truth, a complete reversal of reality, pro-war, not anti-war, and campism, not anti-imperialism. Now, I just want to close with one final observation. Uh, did you happen to notice that on November 11th, the UN Committee on Decolonization approved a resolution to request an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice on Israel's ongoing illegal occupation of Palestinian territory. And one of those voting for the resolution was, wait for it, Ukraine. And four days later, on November 15th, seemingly in retaliation, Israel abstained from a vote in the General Assembly calling for Russia to pay reparations to Ukraine, which I am happy to say passed. And let's turn for some words on this matter to the Indian left opposition figure Kavita Krishnan, a Marxist and feminist associated with the so-called Liberation Group, a faction of the very factionalized Communist Party of India. So she's probably considerably more doctrinaire than I am. But what she has to say here is spot on. This was posted to her Facebook page. Quote, Ukraine voted in UN for ICJ, International Court of Justice, to investigate Israel's prolonged occupation, settlement, and annexation of Palestine. Russia and China also voted in support of this resolution. U.S., U.K., France, Canada opposed. India abstained. The point to note is, unlike the global left, which argues geopolitical realities to skimp on its solidarity with Ukraine and argue that Ukraine must negotiate to give up its territory to the Russian invader and occupier, Ukraine rejected geopolitical logic in favor of a moral stand. A moral stand acknowledging Israel's occupation of Palestine's rightful territory, even if, realistically, Palestine's chances of winning back the whole of its occupied territory are far poorer than Ukraine's are today. 
This is a post especially for the attention of all you who use Palestine as whataboutery to undermine solidarity for Ukraine and accuse Ukraine and Zelensky weirdly and without any basis of being Zionist and fascist at the same time. Do I support the Ukrainian government on all its domestic and foreign policy decisions? Not at all. But I see Ukrainian workers fighting a military battle against the invasion and their unions resisting the government's anti-labor policies. I see the government correcting course and choosing the moral side on various foreign policy questions rather than just sticking to whichever camp supports it against Russia. And that's better than most countries in the world today. End quote. Thank you very much, Kavita Krishnan. Very heartening to see a voice from the communist left, no less, with her eye on the ball like this. And I say, let's hear more from Kavita Krishnan and similar principled Ukrainian left opposition voices like Yulia Yurchenko and a whole lot less from Noam Chomsky, Medea Benjamin, and Max Blumenthal. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. We really need your support to keep going with this project. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.